Hi there, and welcome back to Future to Fight For. My name's Ed Miller. I'm a senior campaigner here at GetUp, which is a movement of over 1 million Australians fighting for a more fair, flourishing, and just society for all of us. Future to Fight For is a podcast about big ideas that could address the big challenges that we face with some of the leading thinkers of our time. If you're enjoying the conversations, you can go to futuretofightfor.org.au and check out the policy ideas that we've put forward that we believe could shape Australian society and remake the Australian economy for the 21st century. It's been a while between episodes. I went on holiday for a month and came back to a country that was facing by-elections, leadership changes, and you know a shifting landscape of policies in the lead-up to the next federal election. But I'm excited that we can finally share with you a conversation that we recorded all the way back in June with leading author, environmentalist, and activist George Monbiot. George Monbiot is a regular columnist at The Guardian, uh, and his most recent book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, is a fascinating insight into neoliberalism, which he thinks is at the root of most of our contemporary political and economic problems. We chatted about what neoliberalism is and what he thinks might replace it. George, thanks so much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks very much, Ed. It's my pleasure. Your most recent book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, is a fascinating look at what you describe as the failures of neoliberalism. I feel like neoliberalism is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot in public debate. Do you mind beginning by defining what neoliberalism is? Neoliberalism is the political doctrine that originated really with um, Friedrich Hayek's 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom. Uh, but also reinforced by Ludwig von Mises's book, um, uh, Bureaucracy, and then by a whole series of economists and philosophers, including Milton Friedman and um, others at the Chicago School in the United States. And it broadly um, says that society should be run as if it were a business, um, and that the um, um, primary mode of human interaction is competition, uh, that we are inherently selfish and greedy and that that's a good thing because we should harness that selfishness and greed to ensure that competition intensifies so that society is run as a kind of race between winners and losers. And the winners, you can tell who they are because they're the ones with the money. They are the deserving people. The losers are inherently undeserving because they haven't tried hard enough and they're not enterprising enough and therefore nothing should be done to help them up. Um, there should be a um, an abandonment of the welfare state. Uh, there should be a great reduction of public spending and of taxation and regulation. Trade unions should be pretty well struck down um, because all of these interfere with the discovery of the natural winners and the natural losers. <laughs> well, I don't think that there's many people who listen to this podcast that would agree with that view of the world. But I think one of the arguments that you make quite powerfully is that it's not just a difference of perspective. There's actually very little to support that view of the world. Is that right? Um, it is completely baseless. Um, the, the science um, tells us very clearly now that while we all have a bit of selfishness and greed in us, we are predominantly cooperative creatures who have a very strong sense of empathy and altruism towards others, we don't behave at all as neoliberals suppose. And when they try to force us into that mode of behaviour, it causes a whole series of social, political, environmental and psychological impacts culminating in psychic rupture and mental health crises across the board. 
I think that the way that you describe human nature is actually quite moving, but I suppose one of the difficult things that I often feel when I'm looking at global politics at the moment is that there seems to be this resurgence of reactionary, racist, conservative politics. How do you reconcile who we naturally are with the way that we sometimes treat each other? Well, neoliberalism, which has become the dominant doctrine of the past 30 or 40 years, and you know has very seldom been identified as such, we called it things like Thatcherism and Reaganism, as if it had just appeared independently in those nations, rather than being a coherent ideology driven by an international network, funded very heavily by some of the richest people on earth. Neoliberalism sees politics itself as illegitimate because politics interferes with that discovery of winners and losers. It interferes with what they call the free market, but is really just the power of wealth. And so politics under neoliberal systems gets hollowed out. It's no longer an instrument for changing social outcomes, because to change social outcomes through politics is considered illegitimate and should be ruled out as an option. So it doesn't encourage social mobility. It doesn't encourage the transfer of money from the rich to the poor. And so it basically means that there is no way you can use politics as a lever to affect change, which is going to improve your life. And so in the absence of an effective politics, people orientate instead towards an anti-politics, a reactive demagogic anti-politics of symbols, slogans and and sensation rather than of argument and debate. And what this politics does in the hands of people like Trump and Modi and Duterte and Erdogan and Orban is to say, oh, the political elite, they're just yabbering away with all their arguments and debates way above your heads. It's got nothing to do with you. They're not interested in you because, you know, they're right. They aren't. Um, And so we are giving you an alternative to politics. We are giving you something completely different where we're going to make you feel great, often at the expense of other people. And um, we are going to make our nation great again. And, and so it's a replacement of an effective, active politics, which tries to change social outcomes, tries to change people's lives. That is replaced with a sort of weaponized demagoguery, which says uh, you don't need to bother with facts and figures and arguments and the rest of it, because we are going to make you great again. So in a way, neoliberalism has cleared the space for demagoguery and in some places, the resurgence of fascism. One of the things I always love about your writing, and you've done it a lot in this conversation as well, is that despite the number of big systemic problems in the way that the world's working, automation, artificial intelligence, the rise of neoliberal attitudes that have undermined our political systems, you never lose sight of the individual. Uh, You've you've written a lot about the mental health impacts of the the economies in which we live. You've written a beautiful essay uh, on loneliness. Uh, Why is it, do you think, that you focus so much on individual experiences and individual feelings Because I I assume that that's quite a deliberate choice. Well, the idea which we're constantly surrounded by is a Hobbesian idea that humankind in the state of nature is involved in a war of every man against every man, leading to a life which is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. And Thomas Hobbes could be forgiven for that approach in 1651, 
when he'd just witnessed the ravages of the English Civil War, when he believed in the doctrine of original sin and his understanding of evolutionary psychology was confined to the book of Genesis. But what we now understand is that we're completely different to that view. We are, in fact, the uber-social mammal. The only mammal which is perhaps more sociable than human beings is the naked mole rat, but we won't go into that. Um, but we, we have this incredible capacity for cooperation, which is how we survived during evolutionary history when, in the savannas, we were the slowest and weakest of all the large mammals. But we not only survived, we kind of over-survived. We wiped out everything else. Well, how did we do that? by incredibly intense cooperation and by mutual aid working together. And to, to reinforce that, uh, we turn out to be by far and away the most altruistic of all known species. There are various other species which showed a degree of altruism towards unrelated members of their species. Nothing like the daily acts of kindness that characterise humanity. And, and they're so ordinary that we don't even notice them. We only notice the bad things that people do because our minds are attuned to danger. And of course, the news media exacerbates that because it is always telling us about the bad stuff that's happening. And yet we are this sort of super empathetic, altruistic and sociable creature. When we are, when that urge is thwarted, when we're basically stopped from being the extraordinary creatures that we are, and our good nature is truncated, well, that has devastating implications for our psychological health. It's no accident that solitary confinement is an extremely effective form of torture because our minds are social minds. We cannot form a mind without other people, and we go mad in the absence of others. And so when we are persuaded that the highest state of humanity is to stand alone. And when we glamorize the idea of being a lone ranger or a soul trader or a self-made man or woman, and we, we therefore set ourselves apart from other people, as we, we're induced to do, we set in train the potential for devastating psychological and physical consequences. And amazingly, it turns out that loneliness isn't just bad for your mental health, Chronic loneliness is as bad for your physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, twice as bad as obesity. There's a great wealth of research now showing that lonely people are far more susceptible to illness and then far more likely not to recover from that illness than people who have a strong social network. There's one remarkable study which shows that elderly people with two or more chronic diseases are no less likely to die in a given period of time than elderly people with no diseases if they have a strong social network. If they don't have that network, they're, they're far more likely to die than those without chronic diseases. Geez, that's fascinating, but it's also a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit depressing. Uh, and I, I think that it's probably a good moment to, to, to turn to the other part of your writing and thinking, which is about what, what comes next. And what might replace neoliberalism? Given the power that you talk about neoliberalism as having over the way that we think, the way that we relate to each other, the way that we see the legitimacy of the political system itself, what should politicians or progressives be doing to try and move people beyond that way of thinking? The most powerful instrument in politics is the big political narrative. 
not just any old narrative, but a particular narrative, which I call the restoration story, which goes as follows. Disorder afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero, who might be one person or a group of people or even an institution, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them and restores order to the land. Now, that narrative, for good or for ill, has been deployed by just about every successful political and religious transformation in human history. We, we, our brains seem to be prepared to hear that story and we're constantly listening out for it when a politician or, or a leader of some kind speaks. And um, particularly progressives and radicals have failed to understand the need for that story. And so when we're not telling our stories, other people, fascists, for example, move in and tell their restoration story instead, which is that we will return, restore purity to the land by stamping out these powerful and nefarious forces of Jews or Muslims or immigrants or whoever it might be. And we have to tell a restoration story which has power and, and actually conveys the messages that we want and build in our politics into that story. And so my restoration story goes as follows, which is disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism, which have set us apart, atomized society, told us that we are lone individuals who um, should um, be striving against all others. And in doing so, has not only destroyed our ability to change political outcomes, but has created an age of loneliness and atomization, where we are alienated not just from our labor, uh, not just from society, not just from the natural world, but also ultimately from ourselves through psychic rupture. Um, but we, the heroes of this story, by coming together, by rebuilding political communities, um, by um, through that, by transferring real political power and wealth to communities out of the hands of oligarchs will restore order to the land. So that's that's the framing within which we then embed the policies which can affect that transition. Just building on that, and before we get into policy, I want to make this narrative a little bit more concrete by uh, dipping into something that you call the commons. Uh, which is a different way of organizing or relating or interacting with one another that you think provides a better or forgotten alternative uh, to the current competitive dynamic of the market. Can you explain what the commons is and how it fits into that narrative that you were just talking about as a uh, better solution for organizing and relating to one another in modern society? When we position ourselves politically, we tend to do so along one axis with um, the state at one end and the market at the other. And if you're on the left, you say you want more state and less market. And if you're on the right, you say you want more market and less state. But there are actually four main pillars of the economy. There's the state and the market, and they're both important. Then there's the household, crucially important. And because we um, constantly overlook its essential economic contribution, we overlook the contribution of women who remain the main providers within the household. And then there's the commons. And it wasn't that long ago, just a few hundred years, that the commons was the dominant sector of the economy. Well, it's 
been under attack for so long from both the private sector particularly, but also from the state, grabbing resources which were held in common that we've almost forgotten it exists. But a commons is a resource that is uh, managed by a particular community of people whose products are shared on an equal basis among that community and which is managed according to a set of rules and negotiations that the community itself has developed. That those are the key elements of what a commons is. It's not an open access regime. It's often confused by uh, confused with one. Um, there's a famous paper called The Tragedy of the Commons, which doesn't describe a commons at all. It describes a free-for-all, like the oceans, where anybody can go out and catch fish, and we've all seen what a disaster that is. A commons is is the... Um, is under the control of a particular community which manages it for the good of that community. And it wasn't long ago that all the land on earth just about was held under a commons um, ownership regime until it was grabbed largely by privateers who were taking it for themselves and threw the people off and then proceeded to um, ravage and pillage that land um, with devastating environmental consequences. Because common resources are inalienable, they can't be sold or given away, potentially the commons offers a far more environmentally friendly approach than either capitalism or state communism because it has to be managed in perpetuity for the good of that community. And this takes us to the critical point that the commons are neither capitalism nor communism. They're a different system altogether. And they're a system which I believe is far more responsive to society as a whole, organised through communities, through those who manage the commons, than either capitalism or communism have proved to be. And while we're on the topic of land and resource usage, I wanted to ask you about uh, environmental policy, because I know that environmentalism is something that's, uh, you know, an incredible passion of yours. You started your career as an environmental journalist and activist, and it seems to me as though it is the world-ending policy challenge that we face. And at the moment, we're not moving anywhere near urgently enough to find a solution to that, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world. What's the path forward here? Well, look, we, we, we have the wrong system for solving any long-term problem at the moment because it, it's a system which is so blunt, so diffuse, so coarse that it's very difficult for citizens to exercise control over it. Once every four or five years, there's an election um, generally run on one or two policy areas. It might be about the economy, it might be about immigration, just about everything else gets forgotten. But in the winning party's manifesto or platform, there will be hundreds of policies. And they will then say, well, we've got a mandate for all of these policies. People voted for us, therefore, we are allowed to implement all of these things without any further reference to the people. Uh, for the next four or five years. Oh, and by the way, um, because we, we've been elected, we're allowed to implement a whole lot of other things which weren't even in the manifesto as well. Um, and so that gives us almost no day-to-day -day hold over our politicians, and therefore they very quickly succumb to lobby groups, to capture by the very people they're supposed to be regulating and restraining, people who are an ever-present threat to humanity 
through their environmentally destructive activities, the big mining and fossil fuel corporations, the big um, meat producers, um, the, the people ransacking the seas for fish, whoever it might be, stripping the soil off the land, um, creating air pollution in our cities, all of these things present um, a great threat to our welfare and indeed our survival. And yet um, those industrial interests have captured politics. I suppose that brings me back to the same question, though, which is obviously the system isn't working particularly well the way it is. What's the alternative? How, how can we approach making these decisions better? We need to wrest politics back. And I'm not saying we get rid of representative democracy. I'm saying we temper it with participatory democracy. And there are some fantastic models now for doing that. If you look at the city of Reykjavik, you see that the citizens there have basically taken control of their city. Um, the, the, the future direction of the city is controlled through an amazing process whereby people put forward ideas, other people vote on those ideas, and then the council is forced to go through a sort of properly structured process of considering and either accepting or rejecting with very good reasons those ideas. And it's led to this massive resurgence of political participation. Basically, the city is now governed by two thirds of its citizens, those who turn up. And that's um, just been transformative for the environmental, social and political performance of Reykjavik. Then you can look at participatory budgeting, another marvellous transformative idea which could be taken a lot further. It kicked off in Porto Alegre in southern Brazil, um, where 50,000 people a year now set the municipal budget um, and through an amazing participatory process. And that has led to far better um, 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 water supply, far better sewerage systems, better primary schools, better primary health, better social outcomes right across the board, such that the people of Porto Alegre have been doing something which political scientists say is impossible. They've been lobbying for their taxes to be raised because they can see how much more effective their money becomes when it's spent collectively under their control than when it's spent privately, that they can see their lives being transformed by this process. Now, I would like to take all this a step further. You know, I think incorporate those models, incorporate what the Kurds have been doing in Rojava with um, these amazing bottom-up political processes, but at the same time, see a big shift towards economic democracy by transferring real resources into the hands of community groups. And one of the methods I favour is to say, let's have a very high rate of land value tax on the most valuable property. So people who've got more than a million dollars of property, for example, you um, um, stick a big rate of land value tax to break the upward spiral of property accumulation. It's also generating revenue. Part of that revenue should be distributed to commons land trusts, community land trusts, um, where people will have um, the money to buy land, the right to buy land, and the right to land assembly, so that they can start um, accumulating, particularly in, in our cities, community land banks, which can then be used for genuinely affordable housing, for public amenities, for generating further income, which could perhaps pay a local citizen's basic income. Um, you've got all sorts of amazing potential starts to grow out of it when wealth is transferred from the oligarchy 
into the hands of communities. And I think there's incredibly exciting potential here, which we've only just begun to tap even theoretically. It is exciting. And, and you know, GetUp, GetUp was sort of founded on that model of participatory democracy, getting ordinary people involved in politics um, because it's too important to be left to politicians. And it's it's something that you've obviously got a great you know degree of belief in as well. You were one of the people who were you know the earliest supporters of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, even when the polls had him way down and out. You were also a big fan of Bernie Sanders. What is it that you think lay behind their success, even as relative outsiders or underdogs in their respective campaigns? Because they understood the power of the political community through big organising, mobilising large numbers of volunteers to do the sorts of jobs which previously were done by staffers, needing very little money, very little centralised collection of money, and using one wave of volunteers to train the next wave and to train the next wave. They mobilised a vast number of people who were just like the people they were trying to reach. Instead of having professional canvases with clipboards going around saying, so what do you think, sir? You had people saying, I feel your pain because I'm having it too. Where you are is where is where I am. And this is so much more powerful. You know, we are the great social communicating mammal. And when we meet someone on equal terms like that, we um, uh, find an incredibly powerful means of melding our minds, of, of developing our common interests. And this is what the Sanders campaign tapped into so successfully. And um, I, I read a, a book by two of its organisers, um, Becky Bond and Zach Exley, called Rules for Revolutionaries, explaining how big organising worked. And I was really excited by this and the way that it turned Sanders from being a totally sort of marginalised, no-hoper figure, according to the media, into someone who very nearly clinched a Democratic nomination. And, you know, it was a sort of running experiment they were doing with big organising. Had they run a little longer, I think he would have clinched it. And I think he would have wiped Trump off the face of the earth because he was building such momentum. So I read this book. And then soon after that, Theresa May called her election. And everyone was predicting in the media, they were saying, oh, it's going to be a Tory landslide. The only debate was, is the Tory majority going to be 100 or 120? And and I thought, well, if Labour does this big organising thing, there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't win this, um, even though they had sort of only six weeks. So I made a video for The Guardian arguing this. And, you know, you should never read the comments under <laughs> under an article or video or anything you make. But I, I, I've got this sort of fatal attraction to them. I can't stop reading them. And it's like, oh, it's always a mistake. You know, every time I do so, it's like, oh, why did I do that? You know, it's... it's, it's it sort of feels like a hangover. And I read these comments. And I thought, oh, God, talk about wishful thinking. What an idiot I am. Because every single comment was, you're a complete nutcase. This is completely crazy. Of course, Labour doesn't stand a chance. And I thought, oh, no, you know, I've really gone and done it now. But little did I know that even as I was making that video, and it had nothing to do with me, Labour were already meeting the Sanders team and applying those lessons with incredible effects. And it was through that big organising, in just this very brief six-week window that they had, they managed to turn the whole thing around and actually deprived the Conservatives of their majority. They very nearly won. Again, a couple more weeks, and it's almost certain that Corbyn would have won it. And to the absolute astonishment of almost everybody. But this is the incredible power of mobilising public enthusiasm, of mobilising people who want you to win, rather than just trying to 
gather data and gather money and put up big billboards and stuff. It's actually getting enthusiastic volunteers out there, creating their own political community and then drawing millions of people into that community. The final question that I wanted to ask you, George, is one that I ask every guest that comes on this podcast. We live in a pretty scary and challenging time, not just because of politics, but because of the relentless march of technology and automation and globalization that are changing the way that we live and work alongside one another. And in your own personal life, readers of your blog would know this year you've had prostate cancer and and you've had surgery for that cancer. And yet, despite all of that, you're this incredibly optimistic person. I think anyone listening to this conversation uh, will have already had a flavor of that optimism and that sense of hope. And I'm just wondering, what is it that makes you feel so hopeful about the future, even when it would be easier just to give in to a sense of hopelessness? Well, first to say, um, it only seems hopeless because we're not looking at it right. Um, Political failure is at heart a failure of imagination. And if you're staring at the wall and not seeing the cracks in the wall, it's because you're not seeing it from the right perspective. There are always cracks in the wall and you have to stand back, look from a different angle and you will see those cracks. I'm pessimistic about what people do and I'm optimistic about what people are. I think we are just an astonishing species. We have these massive, largely untapped reserves of altruism and empathy, benevolence towards others, kindness towards people. And it's not that we have to change human nature, we just have to reveal it. We have to get past this stupid, juvenile, completely scientifically groundless belief that we are all lone rangers and and that's the way we ought to be. There's absolutely no basis for that whatsoever. Um, It's pure mythology um, promulgated by people who just have no conception of what human beings are, largely because perhaps, you know, as, as has often been demonstrated, our political leaders are very different to the rest of us. There's a very high degree of psychopathy amongst our political leaders. Um, and that's very different to the human norm. And so they see us as they are themselves, but that's not how we are. So we have to assert who we are. We have to say, actually, we are an amazing species of incredible people wanting to do good for others, wanting to do good in the world. And and that's the capacity that we must mobilise. And, you know, as, as we've been seeing with things like the Sanders campaign, the Corbyn campaign and many others, we, we can mobilise that. We're only just beginning to discover how we can mobilise it. We're beginning to discover the techniques um, of big organising, which is a whole new political field, really. And when we ally that to a powerful new restoration story, which tells us where we are and how we got here, and then most importantly, where we're going, that lights a path to a better world, then we become unstoppable. George, this has been such a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Ed. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. Um, and if you're, if you're listening along this week and occasionally found yourself struggling to keep up with the, the rapid pace of really big ideas as they just rolled off his tongue, uh, trust me, you weren't the only one. I, I remember back when, I, when we had the conversation, we were recording it, it took every ounce of my attention just to try and keep up with him. He's obviously such a brilliant thinker and speaker. 
Um, but that's okay. You can always slow it down and rewind and, and listen again. Just a couple of pieces of housekeeping. You know, George mentioned in the conversation towards the end there that he, he was inspired by a book written by Becky Bond, who is one of the key organizers on the Bernie 2016 campaign. Get Up is actually hosting Becky and a couple of the other uh, people from the Bernie team for a series of events along the East Coast in, in November this year. Um, and if you're interested in coming and learning more about big organizing or the big ideas that were at the heart of that campaign, do keep an eye out for those tickets when they become available and we'd love to see you along there. And the final thing is, is that our next episode will be with Yanis Varoufakis, who is the former finance minister of Greece and one of the founders of DM25, which is a new movement for democratic reform taking hold in Europe. We talk about everything from the way that the Euro financial crisis happened to the desperate need for greater regulation of our banking and financial systems globally and the ways in which economics is kind of like a modern religion. Can't wait to share that conversation with you soon.